0: This morning I want to talk to you about something that's been of a real interest to me over the last six months or so, and something that you're very familiar with, and that's this Bible, the Bible that, that you have in your homes, that you have on your phone, that you have in your pew right now. And just for a minute I want to, I want to show you how interesting this book is, just in a few slides. The Bible's a book that was written... Over 1,600 years, over a long period of time, from the beginning, of in, beginning when Moses started it, it took about 1,600 years for John to, to write the final book in it. It took about 40 generations to write that. It was written by approximately 40 different authors. You think about Moses. He was a political, ra- political leader that was raised in Egypt um, that then led God's people. Um, Joshua, he was a military general. Luke was a doctor. Matthew a tax collector All these people came from different walks of life And they all wrote the the Bible that we have today It was written in hundreds of different places You think about Moses writing in the wilderness Paul possibly inside prison Luke while he was traveling And others on on different campaigns Military campaigns and other campaigns as well It was written at different times like Like I mentioned David wrote in times of war Solomon in times of peace, the apostles wrote in times of persecution, and there were many other things that, many other times that this book was written in different moods, possibly from moods of joy and others from moods of sorrow. And it was written on three different continents Asia, Africa, and Europe. And you think about the different cultures that are present on each of those continents and the vast uh, differences that those people experience in their life. And and they all wrote together in this book. And it was written in three different languages, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Hebrew and Aramaic make up the bulk of, or all of the Old Testament, and then Greek is what the New Testament is written in. And you think about the subject matter of of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the New Testament. Various number of topics are covered. You can think about in Genesis, the origin of man and the universe, um, the nature of man, the nature of sin, the fall of man, and then God's ultimate plan for man to be saved. All of that plus many, many more are contained in this book. and, And with all of this in mind, how many people it took, how long it took, the vast area that all these people wrote in, there is harmony in the Bible. There's not, nothing, no one disagrees about anything. There's harmony and continuity as you go throughout this book. And I want you to think for just a minute, if you were to take 10 people from this church and we're all from the same walk of life, we're all mainly from uh, around the same generation, or, um, we're all from one place, one time, one mood. Imagine if we took 10 people and I said, I want you to write a book on money management. You can imagine that that there's gonna be many many different ideas we all have different ideas on how to money how to manage money there's not going to be harmony there's not going to be continuity yet in this book that spanned 40 different generations of people there's harmony and continuity on some of the most difficult conversations different most difficult topics that we know the bible's harmonious so we know that the bible is not just another book it's timeless it's accurate It's precise, it's historical, as we'll see uh, this morning, and it's a miracle from God, and we need to treat it like that. And even with all this, all this evidence that I just showed you in mind, people still question the authenticity and the translation of the Bible. And so we're going to spend some time this morning talking about the authenticity and the reliability of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're going to spend 30 minutes or so Trying to figure out is is this that what we have is this what the New Testament authors penned about 2,000 years ago? Do we have the original message that they intended us to to have? And then we're going to spend some time talking about the translation of the Bible. Uh, last week I was talking to a lady, and she said her niece had left the church because she just couldn't trust the Bible. She didn't know that that what the Bible said was really original she couldn't she said she couldn't trust the the translation that she had and then I talked with another lady that that believed that the King James was the only inspired word of God and so is that true is that a true statement we want to find that out this morning this is a a piece of papyrus and this is the the book of John and this dates back to about 8200 so about 150 years or so after it was written And this is handwritten, as you can obviously see. Um, They didn't have printers back then. They didn't have the paper that we have. You can't just go to Walmart and buy that. Um, And and so for just a minute, I want you to see the difficulty in creating something like this, this piece of papyrus. So how did we get the Bible? The original letters that were written by um, the various writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, um, others, they were written on... Papyrus. These, these original letters were written on papyrus, and papyrus was a plant that grew in the, in the Nile River, around the Nile Delta. The problem with papyrus is that it degrades very quickly over time, um, and so just like any other plant, just like uh, the plants that we have today, they decay, they break down, and they weren't meant to be long, long-term solutions. And you can imagine that these original letters that, say, for instance, Paul wrote to Corinth or Paul wrote to Ephesus, that letter was read, and it was read multiple times, and it was shared with other people, and that letter degraded over time. Um, and so did the material, or mainly because of the material that it was written on. And so it break, broke down and faded quickly. And because of that, manuscripts, or another word for manuscripts is copies, copies were made. Of these original letters and they were very meticulously made um, in order to preserve the author's original words the problem though with this is these copies or these manuscripts were written again on papyrus something that's going to break down in in just a couple couple years um, depending on the amount of use that it had and so beginning in the fourth century AD so about around 300 AD Parchment was beca- becoming uh, more common, and it was replacing papyrus as a, as a writing, um, as something to write on. And so we're hand- just a paper, pieces of paper, but they had to be hand fabricated and made from calf skin. This is a, uh, just a depiction of how difficult it is to, to make this vellum. To make one sheet of vellum, a parchmenter would start with the skin of a calf and soak it with running water overnight. It would then be put in lime water for about a week, then brought out and scraped for a day or two, soaked in lime water again a second time and scraped again. Finally, it would be put back in the clean running water for two days and then mounted on a frame and scraped again for several days. As it dried while being scraped clean, the parchmenter would sand it and pumice it. This whole effort might take two or three weeks, all of this for one single sheet of vellum or one single sheet of parchment. And so this process, that's just for one sheet. That had to be done over and over again. And you think about the, the copious amount of pages that are in our Bible, around 2,000, it would take about 2,000 pages to make one Bible using about 400 skins of animals just for one Bible. Um, so that's, that's how intense that process is. And that's just for the writing paper You think about the utensils that that they used to to hand write all this on. They had to be hand fabricated as well. They couldn't just use a Sharpie or or use an inkjet pen. So quills were used. Quills were usually made from the outer feathers of a large bird, a goose or swan. The chosen feathers, only a few, uh, around five to 10 per bird were usable. They would be plucked. The barbs were then scraped clean. The remaining shaft would be hardened by heating and cooling in a sand pit. The remaining hide would be scraped off, the tip would be cut at an angle, and then carefully split. This whole process would take maybe a day, or a day for 10 or 20 quills. A scribe would continuously sharpen the quills, the quills end throughout the day's writing, and one might last a single day. And so several hundred quills, as you can imagine, would be used to copy the Bible. And then the copyists would then hand copy it. You got really efficient at copying just because you wanted to make sure that that, that document was accurate, that it, was, it matching, that it matched exactly to the original. There's been several modern attempts made at, at copying the Bible by hand. And one of these, uh, this was seven or eight years ago, this guy wrote for six to 14 hours a day, every day, and his name was Philip Patterson. It took him about six years to, to copy one Bible by hand. And so you think about the, the immense amount of time that people took to preserve God's Word. Many, many hours, many days, many years, many people's livelihoods were spent. This should be repeated every single time that we needed another copy of the Bible. And that's why people back then, they cherished their Bible. They they knew how how difficult it was to create this thing and how difficult it was to, to copy it. So with that being said, to determine the authenticity and the trustworthiness of the New Testament, you need two things. First, you need a complete text that is original and authentic. And you also need a translation process that works and is accurate. So unless you have the the original text and you know that what you have is original it doesn't matter what you what you translate if you don't have anything that, that is worth anything and so for just a few minutes I want to talk about the remaining text that we do have and the re- reliability of it and you will find that the Old Testament and the New Testament as a whole have been accurately pieced together um, throughout time and so over time Um, we have found these copies of of papyrus and and copies of parchment and through archaeological digs or through other things, through, um, as we'll talk about here in a minute, and those have proven the validity of the New Testament and the Old Testament. So this is how we know that the Old Testament wasn't just rewritten in in AD 1000. We can trace it all the way back to the source um, as close as we can to the apostles' writings. And so with these biblical manuscripts, they found over 128 original Greek papyrus fragments. And those are those those really brittle Nile Nile Delta plants um, that were written on, the the ones that degrade um, so quickly. And here's an example. I'll show you four examples. This is papyri uh, P90. And this is a copy of John. And this dates back to the 2nd century. Papyrus P98. This is... Another uh, Greek manuscript of Revelation, this dates back to the second century. Uh, this is the oldest known manuscript that we have, and this is um, early second century, so it's possible that this, this dates to only 50 to 75 years after John originally wrote it. And then Papyrus P104, this is just an example of Matthew. And so it's, it's really amazing that these plants have lasted over 2,000 years and how well they've been preserved and how close they are to the originals. This is an entire book of John. Um, This is all on papyrus. Um, It's really impressive that um, this is sometime around 8,400 that this has lasted as long as it has. So in addition to those those papyrus fragments or those plant fragments, there have been 5,828 New Testament Greek parchment Fragments or manuscripts that have been found and you'll see here in just a minute that these are a lot more uh, Legible they haven't broken down near as bad just because these are the ones that were uh, Copied and written down on animal skins and these started about 8300 like we said um, Here's four examples of those. This is Kodak Beze um, it, in, it encompassed the four Gospels as well as Acts and 3rd John and this dates to about the 4th century and it has about 854 pages, and you can see that that uh, resembles kind of the, the book that, books that we have today. It looks similar to that, um, similar to the paper that we have today. This is another codec. Um, this is, contains the four Gospels. This is dates to about the fourth century, and it's 187 pages long. And the interesting thing about all this is you can go online, and you can look up every single one of these transcripts and manuscripts that they have, And you can look at each page and and see them all. They've all been digitally scanned. This is another one. Um, The interesting thing about this, it was written in about the sixth century, um, but it's written entirely in gold ink. And so it's been well preserved. And here's another one. This is all of Paul's letters. Um, It's about 99 pages long. And so we use these to decide, is what we have here, is this original? Does it it go back and does it show us the original uh, author's work? So in addition to the, the Greek papyrus fragments and the, par- and the manuscripts, uh, the parchment manuscripts, there have been 18,524 early translation manuscripts found. And what those are is um, where they've translated from the original Greek to Latin or some other language. They can look at those translations and they can see whether or not we're, we're accurate. There have been 42,000 Old Testament scrolls that have been found uh, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. So in all, we have 66,362 total manuscript evidences showing us how accurate the Bible that we have today. And in addition to this, there's 86,000 quotes from, from early church apostles, early church evangelists, um, early church fathers um, that can help, help us know that we have exactly what the original manuscript said. This is just for comparison's sake. Um, when you think about these uh, these old works such as Plato or Caesar or Homer, you've probably heard of these. I don't know if you've read any, any of these. But these works are kind of revered for how accurate they are and how, how, how well we know that we, these things have been, been translated over um, the last 2,000 years or so. And so for Plato, um, we have about 210 manuscripts total, and that's considered very, very accurate. Pliny the Elder, about 200. Caesar in the Gallic Wars, 251 uh, total manuscripts. And then Homer, we have several of those, 1,800 of those. These are these are kind of prestigious for the amount of evidence that we have that show how accurate to the original that these books were. And then when you compare that to the Greek New Testament, there's really not a comparison. The The Greek New Testament has... Like we said, 5,000. And in total, Bible manuscripts, we have about 66,000. So I want to show you just to kind of give you a, to make, to put things into relation with each other. Um, If you were to to look at Plato or look at Caesar and you piled up the manuscripts, there are about 200 of them. They'd be about that tall, about four feet tall um, would be if you pile all those up. The World Trade Center One Tower, which was um, finished just maybe ten years ago, it stands at 1,776 feet tall. It's the tallest building in North America, and if you, uh, most of us have been to Amarillo, the First Bank Southwest Tower is 374 feet, so it's five times the size of the tallest building in Amarillo. There's a picture of it. We went in December, and it's amazing how tall it is. You can, you can take an elevator up there and you can see all throughout New York City um, at the very top of the spire. And so, in relation to that, the New Testament stands about one mile up. And so, it's three times, if we pile up all of the manuscripts that we have that show how original the New Testament and the, Old Test- or the New Testament is, it's about three times higher uh, than this World Trade Center tower. And if you pile up all just the Old Testament, it's about one and a half, mile, one and a half miles high, um, about four and a half times the height of, of the World Trade Center. And it's about two and a half miles high when you, when you put them all together. And so we have a plethora of information, and it stands taller than 13,000 feet, which is taller than uh, the tallest mountain in New Mexico. <laughs> so up until 1947, scholars thought that the Old Testament was pretty accurate. Um, the problem is some of the oldest scrolls that they had dated back to about 1,000 A.D., so about 2,000 or so years after some of those texts were written, and they thought they had a good idea of how accurate it was. But in 1947, two goat herders were herding their, their goats up northwest of the Dead Sea, and they were, as they were going up in these mountains, they were throwing rocks, seeing who, who could throw the farthest rock. And one of them throws it, and they hear the shatter. And so they went to investigate, and what they found were clay pots. And you've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is what they found. Um, they found many, many um, caves. They found 11 total caves with different clay pots in them, all with different uh, manuscripts and different, different scrolls of the Old Testament. And here's a picture of of where all these um, caves were found. And over, I think it was about 10 years, they found 900 different scrolls with more than 225 copies of the Old Testament in Hebrew and and Aramaic. And so after careful translation, they found that these were dated back to about 1,000 B.C., which was 2,000 years earlier than some of the newest um, Old Testament scrolls that they had at the time, and what they found was they matched. That over 2,000 years, um, the, the Old Testament had been translated accurately. So is the New Testament authentic and complete? And, and this was asked to several different scholars, and I've got two of their quotes. F.F. F. Bruce, who was a biblical scholar and professor of Greek up until um, about 1990, he said, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament, and then Bruce Metzger, he said, even if we had no Greek manuscripts today, by piecing together the information that these translation from these translations from a relatively early date, we could accurately reproduce the contents of the New Testament. In addition to that, even if we lost all the Greek manuscripts and the early translations, we could still reproduce the contents of the New Testament from the multiplicity of quotations and commentaries, sermons, letters, and so forth of the early church fathers. And the list goes on and on of of all the different people who praise the New Testament's uh, accuracy. And some of these people aren't even biblical scholars. Some of them are just um, worldly people who still have praise for how accurate the New Testament and the Old Testament are. So I think we've determined that, that we have a text that's original and that's complete to what the original authors wrote down. And so with that being said... There's no point in having that if you don't know what it says. And so we need a translation process that works and is accurate. And and it relays what that original author was really wanting to to say. So I want to answer the question of how does God feel about the use of translation? What do you think God thinks about that? This is Hebrew. And I don't, is there anyone here that can read this? Because I can't. I don't even know what part of the book this came from. This could be uh, could be Genesis. It could be um, Psalms. I just don't know. But this is what the Old Testament was written in. Um, the bulk of the Old Testament was written in this, um, but there were several books like Daniel and Ezra that were written in Aramaic. And so you throw in another language there. How does God feel about us translating this so that we can know what it says? No one hears fluent in hebrew and i don't think anybody wants to learn hebrew and so the old testament like we said the old testament they were penned in hebrew and aramaic and god understood that the world read and spoke and conversed in many different languages if you look back at genesis chapter 11 god caused a vision in language at the tower of babel and so he understood that the world conversed and talked in different languages And so with that being said, he also understood that the world would need to, that the word was going going to need to be translated in order for this vast number of languages throughout the world that were being spoken for them to be understood. And so this is a map of around the 4th to 3rd century B.C., and I I won't get too historical on you here, but where this red box is up here, that's Greece, that's modern-day Greece. And Alexander the Great... Um, around the fourth century BC so about three hundred years before Christ, um, he started to make his conquests and all of these places in yellow over here, um, that was areas that spoke Hebrew and areas that spoke aramaic they didn 't speak Greek like all the grecians did and so as Alexander moved his his troops and as he captured. Um, these different cities, and you you can see his conquest from the red line as it goes throughout there, um, all the way down into Egypt, all those places that spoke Hebrew and spoke Aramaic, they didn't speak that anymore. And so that's what the original uh, Old Testament, that's what it was written in. And so all these people that read and spoke in Hebrew now didn't speak Hebrew anymore. They spoke Greek because that's what um, the Grecians spoke. And so because of that, a translation known as the Septuagint um, was created. This happened sometime around the 3rd or 2nd century B.C. And this is when the Hebrew and Aramaic texts were then translated into Greek. And this was known as the Septuagint. There's a lot of information out there that we don't have time to go over on that. um, But it's really uh, very interesting. I encourage you to look at that. So, how did Jesus feel about the translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint? Would he approve of that? Would he use that? Matthew twenty-two, verse thirty-one. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God has spoken to you? What what has spoken to you by God, saying, "I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob." The interesting thing about this quote that Jesus just said here is this was actually taken out of the Septuagint, and so. Uh, um, Christ had an early version translation of the Hebrew to Greek text known as the Septuagint. And if you if you read throughout and you go and do some studying on it, about a hundred different quotations are taken from the Septuagint Bible or this early translation Bible. Matthew 24, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as witnesses to all the nations and then the end will come. And that's what Jesus said. And he's, this is part of of him saying, everyone's going to hear about this. Everyone's going to read the Bible. And so he understood that people were going to need to hear the good news, hear the gospel through a translated Bible. What about this? Anybody speak Greek? This is coin Greek. um, And this is actually a a translation of Matthew. Matthew. we need to find out a good way to translate from the Greek, which is what all of the New Testament was written in, the modern-day Greek at the time. And we need to find out how, how do we convert that into modern English that we can understand today. And because of its importance, because the Bible was, was so cherished and so spread throughout the world, um, it began to be translated very, very early Um, early on, uh, starting in the 2nd century. So the New Testament was first translated by early 2nd century, so about 180, and many translations quickly followed. So sometime about 50 years after it was written down, it started to be translated. The first Old English translation uh, started about the 10th century, and John Wycliffe, he, you've probably heard of him, he started his translation and finished it in about the 14th century. The problem with these translations is they were translations of translations. They didn't go directly from the Greek into English. They went from maybe Greek into Latin into to English or, or went through many other translations as well. And then in 1611, um, the one that we're pretty familiar with, the King James Version, was finished. And it was revised, again, in 1769 to the one that we use today. But the thing about this is it was the original. It translated directly from Greek into English. And so we weren't going through multiple translations. Uh, We were just using from the original um, to our current language now. And I don't want you to get too bogged down in this. Um, This is a, a chart... Um, you can see the two red boxes there the one on the bottom is called the Erasmus Greek text it's also known as the Textus Receptus and the Textus Receptus was made up of six original Greek uh, text uh, six manuscripts that were then translated into the King James Version and so they used a total of six translations there um, and those translations Dated from about 10th century to about 13th century, so about 1,000 to 1,300 years after um, they were written, those works, what they had found then, were then translated into the King James version and several other Bibles. You can see the New King James version uses that that same Greek text as the New King James as the King James version, and then the one on the top right, uh, you can see it says the Greek text, and this is um, a where they've taken many, many different manuscripts, somewhere around 5,500 manuscripts, 5,600 manuscripts. And those manuscripts date from the 2nd century on up to about the 14th century. And um, those also include the Textus Receptus. And then those texts were then translated and used for the translation um, of the Bible. And so... uh, The nice thing about these Greek texts, using the Greek text, is we have about 800 years newer um, translations than what we did when you look at the old Textus Receptus that were um, somewhere around 800 years after. So for just a second, I want to talk about Bible translation comparison. And the way they do that is it's broken down into three different things, word for word, and you can see that um, on the far left up there, um, thought for thought, and paraphrase. So when you look at a word-for-word translation, you translate each word word for word, um, thought for thought. You use a sentence, and you translate that sentence or phrase, and then a paraphrase is kind of like a summary um, of a passage. So I don't know how many people are familiar with Spanish, but it says "Ami magusta comer pan," and so if we do a, a word-for-word translation of that. It, it reads, to me, me likes to eat bread. If you, if you convert every one of those words and translate each one of those words word for word, that's what that sentence comes out. And so if we go with a thought for thought, it says I like to eat bread because it uses the sentence structure in mind and it, it helps make that sentence make a little bit more sense. And then if we use a paraphrase Bible or a paraphrase translation, bread is good. It's, it's kind of a summary, it doesn't use necessarily even the whole um, passage, it just is kind of like a commentary um, of that, of that uh, s- statement. And so for, for one verse, I want to look at 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, one that we're all pretty familiar with. Um, a word for word, word translation of that says, all scripture is given for I- by inspiration of God as profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And an example of a thought-for-thought thought translation of that is all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And then if we look at a paraphrase, an example of that would be a, the Message Bible. Every Scripture or every part of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful, for one, useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, and training us to live in God's way. And so you can see that the author there, the translator there took a lot of liberties um, when they made that paraphrase and here's um, when you look back at this continuum, um, you can see different translations you can see where the the new King james version fits you can see where the e s v fits um, you can see that the the King james version and the new king james new King James version are right between that word for word and thought for thought and so with that being said, you want something that is original and and uh word for word, but you also want to be able to understand what it says. And so that's when you use that sentence structure and and they can change sentence structure in their translation. This is the preface to the NIV translation. thought this was pretty interesting. The writers there said, like all translations of the Bible, made as they are by imperfect man, this one undoubtedly falls short of its goals. Yet we are grateful to God for, for the extent to which he has enabled us to realize these goals, and for the strength he has given us and our colleagues to complete our task. And so, this sentiment is basically conveyed in every Bible that we have. It's somewhat conveyed in the, new, in the King James Version and many other translations. And those authors basically say, We are human. We make mistakes. God did not translate this Bible, this Bible was translated by humans. And so, we need to keep that in mind. These authors say, There's room for error. We could have mistaken, we could have messed up something here and so this is a, a chart and this is just one example of this this is 15 of the most popular Bible translations and this is characterizing them based on the reading level uh, that, that they have and these charts, they change a little bit but they all are pretty much similar in how they grade them you can see um, starting around grade 7 uh, the New King James Version, the CSB they fall in there Grade seventh and eighth, the NIV, and, and it goes on from from there. Um, if you do studies and you look at the research, um, the average U.S. adult reads on about a sixth to seventh grade reading level, and so with that being said, we need to make sure that when we're talking about the about the Bible and about the gospel, that we're relaying that information in a way that someone can read and some way that they can understand. With that, First Corinthians fourteen. Uh, It says, again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. And so we need to make sure that as we talk to people, that as we use our Bible as um, as a way to do that, that they're able to understand uh, what we're saying. Matthew 24, it says, In this gospel, the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And this is something that I used earlier. This was what Jesus said. Jesus, understanding that the Bible was going to need to be translated, um, he understood that he wanted everybody, and we understand that, that he wanted everybody to be able to understand what he said. And so with all that being said, everything that we've gone over this morning, do we have a complete text that is original and authentic? And I think that we've seen 66,000 different evidences that show us, yes, we do. Um, and then do we have a translation process that works and is accurate? And yes, we do to that too. Um, when a word is translated, we can look up that original word in our Bible and we can look back at the Greek and we can see the exact meaning of what that author was trying to relay uh, when they wrote it down. So this morning I've been talking about this book. We spent about 30 minutes or so um, talking about this book, but for just a second I want to talk about you. And I want to ask you, what does this book mean to you? How do you feel about this book? 19% there was a study done a couple years ago that showed that people that went to church, Christians that went to church, only 19% of them read their Bibles every day. And so I want to ask you, you, are you part of that statistic? Are you part of the 81% of people that do not read their Bible every day? Or do you read your Bible every day? What would that number be if I polled your family? Think about that and be honest with yourself. Acts 17.11 says these were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So would you be considered noble? Do you search daily? Do you study daily? You think about the history of the church and everything that people have gone through and we haven't talked about the persecution of the study or persecution of the translation of this Bible but a lot of people have lost their lives. A lot of people have been killed so that we can read this book, that we can have an authentic, original uh, translation of the Bible. And we'll close with this verse, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. It says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So I ask you, how are you handling this book? Does it sit on your coffee table? Does it collect dust? Do you read it like God is speaking to you, like He is? Do you search it out? Do you get up early to study it? Do you use your lunch break to study it? Do you study it with your kids? Do you get in a study group with other people to study the Bible? I ask you to to find an accountability partner, someone that that you can confide in that will help you study the Bible because... It's so important to us. It's so important that we understand um, what God is trying to say to us. So when you look at at your Bible, is this what it looks like? I think that if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of our Bibles probably look like that. Even if they don't look like that on the surface, maybe you have a a Bible app on your phone. Does it pop up and say, you haven't opened this app in a while, it's time to do that. And I, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, that's probably the case. But I've also seen some Bibles that look like this. You can tell that, that people have, have marked them up. They've studied them. They know what it says. They're referencing it. They're highlighting. They're making notes. And I ask you to look into your heart. I ask you to, to look at, at these two Bibles here and, and realize what does your Bible look like? We're going to sing a song here in a minute, um, and I'll ask you to get your songbooks out for that. I ask you to look into your heart, and, and reading the Bible is something that, that you don't have to come up to, this front, to the front of this church and, and make a confession about, but I ask you to change your, change your perspective on that. Change your idea of how you study the Bible. And with that study of the Bible, sometimes we find out that there's things in our lives that, that we're just not doing right. Sin that we fall into, traps that we fall into, And we need to fix that. And sometimes we need to come to the church. Sometimes we need to confess that. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to offer an invitation. And sometimes with that, sometimes as you study the Bible, you realize that you need need to be baptized. And maybe someone here this morning needs to be baptized. And we'll ask you that if you fit in either one of these categories, that you please come as we stand and sing.